You're listening to a sermon podcast from Paramount Church in Columbus, Ohio. To learn more, visit ParamountColumbus.com. And also, it's great to see everyone's faces and to hear our voices singing together about these rich and important truths of our faith. Let me invite you to turn with me in our text for this morning, which is in the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 6, verses 7 and 8. Revelation 6, verses 7 and 8. Also, a warm welcome to our guests who are with us this morning in person, or perhaps they're our live stream or watching this at another time recorded. We have a number of, of new people here that we are looking forward to get to know, and we also have a number of blasts from the past and some family that are visiting this morning. If you're new to our church, uh, this will be new to you that we have been preaching through the book of Revelation, which is quite a challenge for us as we want to understand what Jesus says to us about coming days. But most importantly, we want to know what the Bible says to us about Jesus' supremacy. But what that means is that as we have been working through the book of Revelation, we have been facing a number of challenges and difficult texts. And the last few weeks have been certainly no exception because we've come to a passage of scripture in which Jesus is seen as breaking seals on a scroll. And just to set that context, we're reminded that what is happening is Jesus is telling about what I believe is a future reality in which he is the sovereign one who is sovereign over us in all things, will open the seals of his plan and release events within his redemptive plan in the future. And a number of these are difficult for us to read. They're frightening. They're challenging. But nevertheless, we want to cling to Christ as we read them and as we look forward to the magnificent and glorious realities that he has planned in the future. This morning is one of those difficulties as well because here in this text, as in many others, hard realities bubble to the surface. This morning, it is the hard reality of death. It's true that nothing upsets life like death. It casts a pall over over everything in our lives when we are faced with with death, death of a loved one or or, or some impending situation of our own fear of death or, or some other death, even symbolic death in our lives. It has this gripping effect to bring with it pain and and grief, distraction, it's, it's heavy, it's oppressive. Nothing upsets life like death. But as Christians, in the midst of that reality, we have good news that there is nothing more settling in life than the death of Christ. This is a providential time for us even to read this text about death and Jesus ultimate reign over it because of what we're going to celebrate in the coming days, Good Friday, in which we celebrate the death of our Savior, and then on Easter, his, his incredible, miraculous resurrection for us, which has, has taken him on down through the ages as the Savior of the world, the one that we direct as many people as we can to look to and to trust because he is so marvelous, so gracious so powerful, the Savior. Well, this morning we come to this text, which is going to bring death to the surface for us, but we want to cling to Christ as we consider these words. We see this morning that Jesus breaks this fourth seal, and it is the seal of death. 
So let's notice a few points as we have other weeks as we've looked at each seal broken. And notice this first. Again, it's that common starting point that we've seen over and over again of Jesus' control over all of these future things, no matter what they may be, those that he has planned. And we see here something incredibly unique, incredibly comforting, that Jesus is the lamb who breaks the fourth seal. Let me read the text this morning, which is verses 7 and 8 of Revelation chapter 6. I hope that you have a copy of God's Word open in front of you or looking on the screen or perhaps on a phone. If you don't have one, you can look on with someone next to you. But these are important words for us to see with our own eyes. It says in verse 7, When the Lamb broke the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, Come. And I looked, and behold, an ashen horse, and the one who sat on it had the name death. And Hades was following with him. Authority was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and famine and plague and by the wild beasts of the earth. And one of the things that's interesting that we see here in this verse, verse 7, is that Jesus is referred to as the Lamb. Now, as you look at your copy of God's Word, if you're looking at one in front of you, it doesn't show this on the screen, but you'll notice that the word Lamb is actually in italics. And often in your Bible, that means that that word is not in the original text of the Bible, but it has been added for some kind of clarity. And we have one of those instances here, and actually it happens again with the next seal when it is broken. If you look back at chapter 6, you see that in verse 1, this is what John says, Then I saw when the Lamb broke one of the seven seals. That word lamb is in fact there, but it doesn't come up until a few verses later, a few seals later again. And so it's added. I think the reason why the editors added that was simply to keep that context, and I think it is an important detail for us to keep in mind. I think that it's important for us to look at this and to remember along the way just who is this person who breaks the seals. And here we are reminded from Revelation 6.1, down here in Revelation 6.7, that the Lamb is the one who breaks the seals. He's referred to as the lamb in the context here of death. Remember, it's the breaking of the seal that sort of unlocks or opens a door, and then out of the door comes this symbolic picture of what's coming in the future, and in this case, death. And then with the fifth seal, martyrs throughout the world, those who follow Christ. But the title lamb, I think, is a striking reference to Jesus here, because of the way it's contrasted with what he is declaring about the future, what seal he is opening, what's coming up out of the scroll into the future reality of his kingdom coming on the earth. And that is that Jesus is the lamb is the striking reference to Jesus, meek and mild. When the Bible talks about Jesus as the lamb, it's talking about him as he who was slain for the sins of the world. It's an amazing juxtaposition of not only the sovereignty of Christ who opens these seals, he's the only one worthy to open them and to declare or reveal what will happen in the future, not to mention that he's the only one who has the power and sovereignty to make those things happen in the future, which he will, including unleashing, as we saw in the first seal, some kind of deceptive forces in the world as a judgment upon the world, handing the the unbelieving world over to all of these other worldviews, to all of these other beliefs that 
that steal from his glory or outright deny him. That he even opens bloodshed of war in the earth. And now we see death of famine and death itself. But think about that. Think about that reality in the world, the coming forth of death into the world, massive worldwide death and judgment on the people of the world compared with this lowly picture of Christ who has been sacrificed for our sins. It's a reminder that he demands not only ultimate worship and service from us as creatures in heaven, but the scriptures reveal him as the ultimate worshiper and servant of God the Father himself. This is an amazing picture. It's one of the the great mysteries of Jesus Christ of all time from eternity past to eternity future is how can this be? How can the king of the universe who does whatever he pleases, who sits on a rainbow circled throne, who is the one who receives glory and honor forevermore, how can he be the one who enters this world and dies for the sins of his enemies. It's the incredible miracle of Good Friday and Easter. It's at the very heart of everything that we believe, everything that we hope for as Christians. It is the very lifeblood of our faith. And it is true that Jesus Christ is both of these. Sometimes this quality of Jesus is brought forward into you know, ordinary, everyday life. Sometimes it's used in, in business or it's used in church leadership or, or in other areas of, of our society. It's this idea that sometimes is called servant leadership. It's a kind of thing that, of course, is, is noble and is admired as we see it in the world. In fact, I think much of the world, I know that I have been struck recently as I've followed the events in Ukraine and and Volodymyr Zelensky has shown himself to be such an incredible picture, a common grace picture of what it means to be not only leader, but servant. I think that that has surprised, in a weird way, that has surprised the watching world. Why is it so surprising? Because as much as we talk about it, we just don't very often see it. Not like that. Not like someone who is at the highest position in his country and yet he is willing to submit himself to all of the terrors and dangers of war on behalf of his people. That he is even willing to sacrifice his own life if that's what's necessary to defend the freedom of his people. We just don't see that. But we see it here because that's who Jesus Christ is. That's what he is like. He is like what you're seeing on the news to the nth degree. This is what it means to be the savior of the world. Jesus, the lamb, is not only the lion, the ruler, but he is also the ultimate worshiper of God. Think about what you know about Jesus as you've read, in particular, the Gospels. You see that he always, in his earthly ministry and life, he always obeyed his father, He prays to his father. He always does his father's will to his father's glory. This is the glorious son of God who has existed from eternity past into eternity future. No beginning, no end, does whatever he pleases, sits on a rainbow circled throne. This is an incredible picture of Jesus. And this is what's captured in that word lamb. Jesus even fulfills the father's will 
not just by living his life, but by giving his life as a ransom for many. This was clear from the very beginning of his earthly ministry. You remember John the Baptist who came before Jesus and was was charting the path forward to announce ahead of time that he was coming and to set the stage. You remember perhaps what he said in John 1, 29 to 30. It says the next day he saw Jesus coming to him and said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he in behalf of whom I said, After me is coming a man who has proved to be my superior because he existed before me. Look at that again, the connection between his superiority and his humility, his ultimate exaltation, and his willingness to even give his own life as the lamb who was slain for the world. How astounding that is that he is the one also who will in the future unleash judgment on the world. We're seeing here the difficult reality that Jesus is both lamb and judge. I think one of the important truths that comes forward in these texts of the book of Revelation is a truth that's often overlooked if not entirely dismissed in our world, perhaps even in our American culture when it comes to Jesus. He has, because he is meek and mild, because he is a servant of all, because he gives his life as a ransom, because he comes in humility and lowliness, he has for many people become a kind of pushover, this weak figure who is waiting on everyone else hand and foot. He's just wishing that they would go his way or that they would come to him. And he has no real control over the world. He has no real power. He is someone that you can take or leave. It doesn't really matter. He's one of a a dozen options of, of other leaders or people you might follow. It doesn't really matter in the end because he's really not all that great. I mean, what's he gonna do to me anyway if I don't follow him? Well, that perspective on Jesus lacks the significant part of what this book is telling us about him, and that is that he is not only lamb, that he is lion, and that he is judge of the world. For those who submit to him, this is the good news of Jesus Christ. For those who have ears to hear and eyes to see and hearts to believe, all because of what God is doing in us, for those who submit to him, He is the lamb who takes away the sin of the world. He is the lamb who has come and given his life as a ransom for you and me. He has done all of this, accomplishing everything that was required of us in God's law, that we would obey him perfectly according to all of the Ten Commandments and then some. And then he gave his life on a cross in our place, then rising from the dead so that we might come to him and be saved to us. He is the lamb. But this is what we don't want the world to miss. This is what we don't want to miss. Jesus is not only that. But for those who reject him, for those who are unwilling to hear, unwilling to see, or unwilling to believe, he is the judge who brings consequences of the utmost 
what the Bible here calls the death and hell he brings to bear. We should consider this really carefully. This is part of the Christian message. It's the reality that every single person in the universe must deal with Jesus Christ. There's no avoiding him. If you think that he is weak and lowly, if you think that he is, he is lacking in power and control, and you overlook him or you deny him, you will find out later just how in control he is. Because not only is he the, the lover of the world, but he is the judge of the world. He's not only the possessor of his glory, he's the defender of his glory. And therefore, every person must deal with him. In fact, there is no other. There is no other judge. There is no other savior. He's the only one. That's why the world seems so adept at distracting from him with all of this other smoke and mirrors. When in reality, if you were to break the mirrors and let the smoke settle, you see only him. There's no one else. And therefore, our message to every person that will hear it is come to Christ. Repent of your sin and become lowly. Humble yourself before him and become a follower of his. Submit yourself to him by his grace through faith in him. Come to know God. Become a Christian. Now while there's time, because what we're reading here is that there is a time in the future where grace and mercy will not be following, but rather death and Hades, death and hell. And this is very real, and it is very serious. So we want everyone to hear that good news. The good news is that even though you and I are sinners, even though we've broken God's law, we've not lived up to God's law. If we were to stand before God as judge, and he were to judge us on the basis of what he requires of us, and by us I mean me, and you, if he judges you on the basis of what he requires of you, he will condemn you. He will sentence you to hell. He will defend his glory by judging you. There will be no pushing him over. There'll be no sweet talking, no sugarcoating. Therefore, the good news is that he is gracious and merciful and you ought to come to him now right now, not only so that you could avoid that hard future for eternity in a place called hell, but so that you would know him. You would know that he, he has pleasures forevermore. He is the satisfier of hearts. He is the one who does ultimate good to his people. He satisfies us. He makes us glad. He forgives us. He showers us with grace and mercy. When we continue to sin and struggle, he is patient with us. He walks with us. He does not berate us. He does not condemn us. He doesn't pour his wrath out on us because his wrath was already poured out on himself. So come to him. What are you waiting for? One way or another, you will come to him. And this text is helping us to see the future reality and the very seriousness of what it means for this lamb to be the judge of the world and what will happen in the future. As a comfort to us, those who believe, and as a caution to those who do not. 
We see first that Jesus, the lamb, is the one who breaks this fourth seal. But we also see that when he breaks the fourth seal, it's death and Hades, as this text says, that will receive authority in the earth. What will happen when the fourth seal is broken? What is going on? Well, we see another rider, another horse. This horse is ashen. Notice what it says in verse 8. John says, I looked and behold an ashen horse, and the one who sat on it had the name Death, and Hades was following with him. It says, authority was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and famine and plague and by the wild animals of the earth. The fourth horseman, as we read here, rides on what's called an ashen horse. Notice that it's different than those other horses. It's not like the first horse, which was white. It's not like the second horse, which was black. It's not like the red horse. It's an ashen horse. Now, this word here is interesting because it's the word in Greek, chloros. You have some other words in English that this brings to mind, like chlorophyll or chlorine. Chlorine is called chlorine because it is actually a kind of green in color. And so when you read that this horse is ashen or chloros colored, you think of it as a kind of pale green. It's a pale green that really only fits as a symbol of death. It's like the picture of a, of a decomposing corpse. It's a terrifying color to see a horse that is pale green and its rider with the name of death. A number of years ago, I'm going to get personal with you, I struggled with some uh, ingrown toenails. You see, I am not above sharing something really gross about my life so that you can understand the Bible better. It was some of the worst thing I've ever, ever experienced, sadly. Those ingrown toenails become swollen and painful, almost couldn't walk. Given enough time, I started to notice something green kind of coming out from underneath the nail. It's this light green pus. Well, that was when I went to the doctor. Because I knew that that was a sure sign of infection. Even in that small example, that is the color. That is the color of death. But notice, this is not only routine death, but also that there are two killers on the loose. This is a picture of someone you might think of as the grim reaper. But this grim reaper is followed by someone else named Hades. This marks the judgment of the broken seal and the horse of death upon the world. Remember that as these seals are broken, this is a time of tribulation around the world in which there is incredible suffering, incredible judgment, incredible pain, and here even incredible death as the grim reaper rides off of the scroll and into the world on a pale green horse. It seems here that death is sort of resembled as it is in Scripture, the place of the, of the body, of the grave. But that's why I said this is not routine death. It is like the pattern that we see in life already because we all live and die. Our bodies are placed in the ground. 
But here also notice that this rider is followed by Hades, another one, or hell, the place of the soul. This is an ultimate judgment of death. This is not just death of the body. This is death of the soul. And it's a frightening, frightening picture. I remember in that movie, Tombstone, it's probably one of my favorite movies. You remember when Wyatt Earp says about his enemy, he's going to get vengeance on him and one of his uh, cowboy minions is there and he tells him after knocking him to the ground to go tell this adversary that I'm coming. And then he adds something else to it. He adds something that raises the stakes, that increases the, the fear. He says, you tell him I'm coming and hell's coming with me. In that movie is captured a simple, everyday example of judgment. It is the picture of judgment. Now again, as we always do, take that picture and multiply it. Because that's what's happening here. Jesus, in this time of tribulation and judgment upon the world, he is saying, you tell them that I'm coming. And hell is coming with me. We see then here a mix of horror, but also, strangely, of hope. Hades is a horror of eternal judgment, and yet it is the hope to us who know that justice must be done in a world like this. You see, the reality is that you cannot uphold God's holiness without judgment. There must be judgment for sin. There must be some judgment. That's why Jesus went to the cross, so that he would give his life for many. Therefore, this is not only to the fright of those who don't know him, but it is to the comfort of those who do, because it's a reminder of us that, that Jesus will make all things right in the end. He will make sure that all of his enemies are made to be his footstool and he will bring all to justice if they don't come to him for justice now. You cannot uphold the holiness of God and the sanctity of life on earth without justice. Now why is that hope for us? It's hope for us because we know of all people, we know the kind of world that we live in. We have a unique biblical perspective on the world that we live in. We know the injustices of this world, hopefully better than anyone, because we can see them in the light of Scripture. Therefore, we're honest with the kind of world that we're in. Look around you. We live in a troubled world, a terrible, terrible world under the curse of sin. Last Sunday morning, six people were murdered in Sacramento, California, and the shooters, I believe, are still on the loose. That afternoon, 80 miles away, two more murders at a park, shooters still on the loose. Again, as we've mentioned a few times recently and noticed on the news, the war in Ukraine has been a sad commentary on some of the things that we see in the book of Revelation. This week, a massacre of people in Bucha, those civilians murdered, horrible, horrible destruction of life. What does this world need? This world needs justice. If there is no justice, it it drains all of those lives, all of those deaths of their meaning. 
if there is no justice. But the good news is, and that's why we're comforted in it this morning, is that this lamb, when he opens the seal, he is opening judgment. We look at this world and we say, we say together, Maranatha. Have you heard that before? Do you know what that means? Maranatha. It means, Lord, come quickly. Come quickly. But what do we mean when we say that? We mean two things. They're the things that we're seeing here. We mean rescue, but also we mean judge. We mean, oh Lord, come and rescue us from this world. And when you come, judge. Make things right. Make things just. I want you to turn, if you can, to another passage of Scripture because it's a little long. It's a little hard to put on the screen. It's Matthew 25, verses 31 through 46, just so that we can get our eyes on this. It helps to illuminate the kinds of things that we're reading about in Revelation, but it also helps us to see this this two-part puzzle of rescue and judgment. And if nothing else, I hope that it would help all of us to further understand where we fit. You should always be asking that question when you read the Bible. Where do I fit? Where am I in the scriptures? Where do I see myself? Where am I standing with God? Matthew 25, starting in verse 31. Notice the connection between rescue and judgment. Even in this future time at the coming of the Son of Man, it says in verse 31, but when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne and all the the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them from one another just as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats and he will put the sheep on his right but the goats on the left. This is another prophecy. It's another forward-looking vision of what's going to happen. And it ties in directly with things that we're reading about in the book of Revelation. Notice Matthew 25 goes on. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. Naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. These are all pictures of what it looks like to walk with Christ and know him, to be united to him. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when do we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? And when do we see you as a stranger and invite you in or naked and clothe you? And when do we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of the least of these brothers or sisters of mine, you did it for me as a family united with me. This is the evidence that you belong to me, is your love for one another. They are on the right. But the goats, the goats are on the left. Here's this picture of judgment following the picture of rescue. Verse 41, then he will say to those on his left, depart from me. You accursed people into the eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, you did not invite me in. Naked, you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they themselves also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or as a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not take care of you? Then he will answer them, truly I say to you, to the extent that you did not do it for one of the least of these 
brothers and sisters of mine. You did not do it for me either. These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So here's the ultimate question of life. Where are you? Where are you in Matthew 25? If this were to happen today, right now, where would you be, on the right or on the left? Would you be in the place of rescue because of God's grace towards you and your faith in him belonging to his covenant family, or with the goats would you be on the left? Those who do not belong with his flock, they do not belong to the shepherd, but rather will be cast away because they have rejected the one who gave himself as a ransom for many. Where are you? You can come to Christ today if you are a goat. If you're willing to say, I am a goat. I am on the left. I don't want to be on the left. I want to know Christ. I want to be on the right. I want to belong to him. I want to belong among his people. I want to be forgiven and cleansed of my sin. I want to be fulfilled and and joyful in him. I want him. Then you should come to him. The stakes could not be higher. And for any of us to hear this and walk away disinterested, it's just a shame. So where are you? Find yourself in the scriptures. If you are on the right among the sheep, rejoice because you're there by grace. Lift your voice, sing to the shepherd, make him known, walk with him, love him because he has loved you. And prepare by hearing his words. Grow close to him, knowing that he is the one who walks with his sheep. Because what we see last this morning is this. That because of these future realities and the breaking of the fourth seal, what this means is, this is where it gets hard again. It means that there will be massive loss of life and grief in the world under God's judgment and the tribulation of this time. Notice in the text the incredible loss. The death in Hades are given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill a fourth of the earth. This is an enormous, enormous population. Perhaps a fourth of the world's population suffers death with the breaking of this seal, What a frightening reality. It's again this picture of God removing the restraints that keeps this kind of thing from happening until now. Death and Hades are given authority to kill. It's a world gone mad. Notice what it says in verse 8. That they come and kill with sword. We've already read a bit about that with war the bloodshed of the red horse coming into the world. With famine, the black horse, that rider then is bringing famine around the entire world because of the war that's going on. Not only that, but on top of it, plague, and even by wild animals. What kind of a world are we living in when this happens? This is like, Walking Dead, 
when all of civilization and protection breaks down, that the world is even being consumed by wild animals. But where's the good news? Well, the good news is here again and that Jesus will carry his people through it. He will care for his people through it. That's what it means for him to be the shepherd of the sheep. That is why it is such a joy and a comfort to know Christ. Because it's not simply that he's going to spare us of all suffering and difficulty. You know that's not true if you've been a Christian for any time whatsoever. He did not stop your suffering. You continue to have a heartache. We continue to face death. We continue to have all kinds of trouble and tribulation and temptation and trial. But the big difference is he is with me. He is walking with me. He is caring for me. He is squeezing out of every moment of trouble every benefit of my joy in him. That's what he's doing for you as well. If you know Christ, he is the one who in the midst of it is sanctifying us. Let me share with you one other brief passage here before we come to a close and sing again. It's a passage in Hebrews chapter 2 which reminds us of the way that he is sanctifying us in the midst of hardship and difficulty. Listen to this, verses 9 through 13. But we do see him who was made a little, for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of his suffering, death crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting for him for whom are all things and through whom are all things to bring many sons to glory, to perfect the originator of their salvation through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one father. For this reason, he is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters, saying, I will proclaim your name to my brothers. In the midst of the assembly, I will sing your praise. Again, I will put my trust in him. This is the calling for us this morning at every step along the way of this book, of anywhere in the scriptures, even in what we have seen this morning, that this is the calling of the gospel. It is to put your trust in him. Every one of us have our trust somewhere. You're trusting someone. It could be you, most likely. Most likely you trust yourself, most It could be someone else in your life that you're trusting to get you through or to carry you or to keep your life together. You may even imagine that person. If death were to come upon that person, your whole life might unravel. It strikes fear to the very depths of your heart. But but for us, as Christians, we're called again and again to place and keep our trust in him now and forevermore. What that means is that we will more and more as the days go on walking together view our lives more and more in the context of his death and his resurrection for us. That's the great calling this morning that I want to challenge you to think more about. I'm going to say that again. We should write it down and think about it as it comes out of this text We want to view our lives more and more in the midst of his death and his resurrection, that we would see everything about our lives gobbled up 
in what he has done for us. That's what it means to walk with him. That's what it means to know him. And that is the only way for us to have comfort in life and in death in this world and the world to come. If you're with us this morning or you're on the live stream or you're watching this recorded and you sense that the words I'm saying are speaking to you, when you hear these words, you have something going on in your heart where you know that this is what you need to do. You know that you're on the left. You wish that you weren't, but you know that you are. You know that you don't really belong to Christ, not yet. That I'm calling you. I'm praying for you. I'm imploring you. Come to him. Don't waste another moment. Don't waste your life. Don't waste your death. Come to Christ now. And know that he is the one who will walk with you and us together now and in every day to come, no matter what he has planned for the world, he will be with us. Let me invite you to stand with me, and I'm going to pray for us, then we'll sing yet again. What we want to do on Sunday mornings after we hear the word of God is we want to carry those truths with us into our singing. We want to keep them at the surface of our hearts so that we can draw on them in our minds. As you sing the words, think about what the words are saying and how they they ping upon the truth that you're hearing in, in the scriptures so that you can use that in your glorifying of him, sing to him with this text on your mind this morning. That's our prayer. Father, we ask you to bring these truths to the surface of our hearts, that they would be on our minds even now as we sing, even as we go, and throughout this week, looking forward to our celebration of Good Friday and Easter next week. God, we pray that the truth of what you have done for us that Jesus has been given for us as the lamb who was slain for our sins, and yet he is also the coming judge of the world, that those truths would drive us to you, that they they, they would season our words, our affections, our feelings for you. We pray that would be true even now as we sing. But I also pray, God, that those of who are here who may need to come to you, that they would not wait any longer that if they want to talk to a pastor or someone else, that they would go to the back while we're singing and that we'd be able to talk or find a time to talk more about this. We pray that you would do a work in their hearts <clears throat> and that you would do a work in our hearts. That we would love you even more because we have seen your supremacy and we've exalted you this morning. We pray that you would bear the fruit of your exaltation in our hearts. Cause us to find our lives buried in your life and your death for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.